Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I apologize for missing out on last week's episode, so this week I'll release two episodes. And today I'll be talking to Professor Dan Hammermesh of the University of Texas. And in this conversation, we talk about his work on the economics of sleep, as well as our allocation of time and how we use our time effectively or productively or how we embrace leisure. My conversation with Dan explores some of the themes and topics from his forthcoming book, Spending Time, which covers our use of time by gender, by region, by country and by economic factors, such as wages. We talk about how sleep is affected by wages, how it's affected by time and whether daylight saving times create behavioural changes by those affected. During this conversation, there has been cases whereby there have been more questions left unanswered due to the expansive research that entails sleep. And I would love if you could get back to me in the comment section on the website economicrockstar.com for any paper recommendations or research that has been conducted in anthropology or physiology or psychology. A number of books have been referred to in this conversation, including Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, who explored sleep deprivation in concentration camps and made his lifetime work as part of his logotherapy, and an essay by John Maynard Keynes on economic possibilities for our grandchildren that touches on the topics of some of Dan Hammermesh's research. You can check out all the links, resources and books mentioned by Dan and myself in this episode over at economicrockstar.com forward slash Dan Hammermesh 2. And the reason why there's the number 2 in there is because Dan has featured on a previous episode, episode 25, where he talks about the economics of beauty. So if you like this conversation with Dan, why not check out episode 25 and complement it with the economics of sleep. Thanks for all of you who have continued to support the podcast through subscribing on Apple Podcasts or by listening on your preferred podcast platform. And I'd also like to continue to thank those who support the podcast on Patreon. And if you've never heard of Patreon or a way in which you can financially support this podcast on a monthly basis, why not check out patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar and check out the levels that are available and one in which you can support the podcast for as little as $1 a week. And you can opt out at any time. So again, thank you and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dan Hammermesh on the economics of sleep. People find work stressful more than any other activity they do, and it's one of their least favorite activities. And somehow we're on a rat race, and politically we're incapable in this country of getting off that treadmill, getting out of the gerbil tube. And most other countries have succeeded in doing so. Hey, Frank, can you hear me okay? I can hear you loud and clear, Dan. Okay, let me make mine louder, because this isn't going so well. Just a second. I see. Oh, just a second, darn it. Hold on. Are you still there? I'm still here, yeah. Okay, I don't know what the problem is. Stupid computer. I can hear you, but not that well. Oh, I know what the problem is. Just don't go away. This is embarrassing. You're all right. Take your time. Now, the problem is very simple. I rode my bicycle in. Yeah. This is really embarrassing. And when I ride my bike, I know not to wear my stupid, bloody hearing aids. (laughs) <laughs> to put back on when I get to the office. So one second, and then we'll be just fine. Okay, say something. Do you want me to edit that out or will I leave it in? 
day. At least I'm not sleeping. That's true. <laughs> what time is it over there? Uh, it's five of eight. I, I'm in my office already. I, I wow. get up very early. Wow. So you must go to bed very early. Well, if I get seven hours of sleep, that's a real good night. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, would you think many people would get seven hours a week or seven uh, hours a night? Uh, the answer is the average is a little over eight. But in fact, on any given night, 10% are sleeping six or fewer. Okay. And that has repercussions. What do you think so on their health? Very hard to get at that. Okay. The best evidence on this is a recent still unpublished paper by a guy who looked at what happens to people who are at the end of an American time zone, at the western end of an American time zone. So, for example, in certain parts of the country up north in the summer, it doesn't get dark till darn near 11 o'clock. Yeah, same here in Ireland. Of course, it's the same latitude. Mm. And Ireland is fairly far, well, not that far west in the time zone. But in certain places like Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is actually further south than you are, it still gets dark very late. And people who are on the western edge appear because of the circadian rhythms affected by the sun, uh, sleep less and have a bit of a health problem because of that. There's also some same evidence for Russia, which now has, I don't know, these days they have nine time zones. They've varied over time. Would you think the so, circadian rhythm was affected by artificial daylight hours as well? That's a hard question. I've not seen any economic research. I suppose there are physiologists who've done stuff on that. Yeah. I mean, you have to remember also on the amount people sleep. That's just a one-night snapshot. There's some evidence from uh, the Netherlands that somebody who sleeps very little one night will sleep more on other nights in the same week. So about half the differences in any one night are just due to somebody having a bad night. And do you feel very refreshed when you wake up and get into work so early? Or is there more factors? Like, would sleep be the, the main factor, determining factor for you to um, be up early like that? Or is it some other incentive for you to do that? No, I wake up, it's pure adrenaline. You think of what you got to get done that day. And I don't think I'm atypical on this at all. Okay. And is that like, is that something that you have always been like that? Because I, I know that you're, you're, you mentioned, I, I reached out to you recently just out of my own personal curiosity on the economics yeah. of sleep. And you said, coincidentally, you're kind of come, uh, going through a book on that. And I did a search on it. The reason why I looked it up is that your name came up when I typed in economics of sleep. And you have done actual self-experiments on this to find out the effects of sleep on, I don't know, your behavior or your, your well-being. This, well, the stuff on sleep that we published low these just 28 years ago now was looking at sleep as affected by wages, how much you can earn. And uh, the book I'm doing now covers all uses of time. I mean, just looking at how people use time, how it differs by gender, by region, by country, uh, and most important, by economic factors, such as how much you can earn, how much your partner earns. So it's a completely general thing on how we spend our time. Indeed, the title of the book is Spending Time. And to give a plug, it will be published sometime between June and August next year by Oxford University Press. Yeah, I can't wait for that because it's something that psychologists are navigating in order to explore people's behaviors in terms of whether it relates back to sleeping and also their health risks too. 
It does indeed. And the interesting thing about health, of course, is the health, not so much health as an effect, but how health affects how we spend our time. I mean, if you're not in good health, you use your time much differently from other people. You're just much more rushed because it takes you more time to do everything. Your paper that you refer to there, Sleep and the Allocation of Time, back in 1989, uh, you just looked at sleep and how it affects your wages. Is this something that is typical of economic the economics discipline at that time, whereby we associated <laughs> economics with money? Well, look, economics is about how incentives affect the use of things that are scarce. And time is scarce. Time is the scarcest thing of all. So you'd think that if your time becomes more valuable because your wage is higher, you're going to change how you spend your time, including sleep. And we found very clearly that people who had higher ability to earn could earn more per hour, in fact, do sleep less. Okay? It's hard to do experiments on this. Uh, the only real experiments are on what happens when some particular area goes on summertime. And so we have a very neat paper on that, I think, which looks at a few areas in the world where most of the country goes on summertime, but some local areas do not. And so one of the states in the U.S., Arizona, doesn't observe summertime. And people's behavior there changes when the rest of the country suddenly switches to summertime. In what way? As in their what, activity? What they, what they do basically is they change their schedules. So suddenly it, you're an hour further behind New York and Chicago. And so what you do is you get up earlier so you can synchronize better with folks in these huge population centers. Same thing in Australia. I don't know how well you know Australian geography, but the state of Queensland, which is closer to the equator, doesn't observe summertime. And Queenslanders do the same things as Arizonans. When the rest of the country goes on summertime, they start getting up earlier, working earlier, and going to sleep earlier. And is there any measurement parameter that we could use, such as earnings? I know that's going back to that paper in 89, but... The people up earlier, the saying is the early bird catches the worm. Are, are there more entrepreneurs per <laughs> capita, really? Uh, in other words, does the early bird get the worm? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'll never forget giving a paper once on something else and the effect of something on something. And some economist, quite well known, said, Are you sure you aren't just really capturing her phrase early birdness, <laughs> which is a term I really liked? Uh, I can't get at that. I mean, there's too many other things going on and one can't isolate whether in fact it's early birdness as it were who makes entrepreneurs or how that's linked to sleep time. I would love to do this. Being a morning person, I am convinced that morning people are just better people morally and they also accomplish more. But I've not seen anything on that very much. Nothing I've found convincing. Well, there's another saying called the second mouse gets the cheese. The second mouse gets the cheese. Well, there's so many mice being second isn't so bad, is it? It's not. No, it's not. <laughs> and the thing is, I haven't yet to do an interview at the equivalent time as what you're doing there at eight o'clock in the morning because I just wouldn't like to be setting up and recording at that particular point in time unless I knew I was going to be up fairly early. Oh, well, this is, A, this isn't early. B, I hope you're flattered. This is my most productive time of the day. I rarely get any very useful work done in the afternoon. So you're well pumped up. 
I'm well, yeah, I mean, I, I start going and racing and by four o'clock, I mean, if I'm able to, I'll even take a nap, which I can't do most days, but certainly I'll reserve that for goofing off activities. Typically. I'm sorry for what I'm going to say here, but is this your hammer time? <laughs> it's hammer time as it were. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is indeed. I recently got, uh, you know, the company 23andMe. Yeah, of course. I've used Ancestry.com, but they're the same thing. So I did this recently, and I got some results back. Yeah. And it stated, I can't really remember, but it suggests that I do not need deep sleep in order to feel refreshed. So I I didn't realize that you could that a, a typical person isolated would require such deep sleep. I don't I don't know if that was the correct terminology. I'll have to check it out. But I, I don't know. My my guys who sent me who analyzed my saliva said nothing about that. They just said where the ancestry comes from. Yeah, I I, I must I actually yeah I must actually check it out. Okay. Um, but yeah, going back to um this work that you're doing on the book why did you choose to write the book on called spending time because i've been working on time stuff actually the sleep was a one of the first two papers i did on this i've been publishing papers on time use really for 30 years now so uh, i thought it'd be fun to write this book i've been thinking about doing this for six seven years and the darn thing is almost done two more weeks the final version goes to the publisher praise the lord uh, what else have I done on time? I've done stuff on racial and ethnic differences in time use. What else? The stuff on time zones and how time zones and television. I don't know if you know in the U.S. It's a crazy system. The same national shows will be on at different times of the day in different parts of the country. And it'll so, be on the same network, would it? Same network, yes. But because of the origins of technology... Uh, a show will be on at 10 o'clock in New York and 9 o'clock in Chicago, which is the same real time. Mm. And that's because when the program started, they were able to do it live partway across the country. But when they started expanding further west, they then started leaving Denver, for example. The show is on at 9 o'clock, just like in Chicago. But in L.A., it's on at 10 o'clock. And so you can think about how these things affect when we work, when we go to sleep, et cetera, et cetera. So they're they're pretty much put out at the, they're not put out they are put out at the same time aren't they these shows so it's the same real time in Chicago and New York yeah. but it's a different time non real time delayed in Denver which is a mountain time zone and Los Angeles what's amazing in in uh, Australia which has basically a three hour expanse a, a, three different zones for all intents and purposes across the country. There, the shows are on at the same actual time. So it's different from the U.S. I wonder, that course, obviously affects viewership then. And if, well, people, to some extent, adjust their schedule. We showed that when the, for example, when I lived in uh, the Eastern time zone, there's a show I always watched called The Tonight Show. And it was on at 11.35. And I would stay up and watch the initial scene for about 10 minutes go to sleep, move to Texas, central time zone, same shows on 1035, used to get up, stay up, watch it till about quarter before 11 and then go to sleep. These things like the sun, like when your work is scheduled, affect when you do things. I mean, when we do things is not just something God given, it depends upon the cues, both natural and the artificial cues provided by the economy that are all around us. 
I wonder, does that affect advertisement revenue and whether there's a premium at those particular t- uh, times? Or, you know, is there anything that sh- uh, shows, reveals that type of data? Well, it's an interesting question. I don't know the answer on that. I'd imagine, however, that advertisers schedule their advertising and the price per minute of advertising is related to the audienceship, of course. And insofar as those vary across a nominal time of the day, I'm sure advertising revenue is higher at 1140 in New York City than it is at 1140 in Chicago, when most of the good shows are already over, no longer a prime time. Dan, where do you get your data from? I'm sure there's something that this isn't collected <laughs> firsthand. No, I'm not doing it myself. I've, done, I've never done a survey like this myself. I've done a lot of surveys. No, the U.S. government, for example, which is sort of in the rear guard of this, finally in 2003 started doing monthly surveys where about 1,000 people are told on a given day, you sit down about 9 in the morning and write down a diary of what you were doing at every minute of the previous 24 hours, from 4 a.m. the previous day to 4, p- 4 a.m. this morning. And we've been doing this now for since 2003. We have about 200,000 such diaries. The U.K. in 2014-15 did the same thing and collected about 25,000 diaries. The Germans did this in the early two teens, did it. The French did it. So most of the data I'm using for this are original things collected by national agencies that I've then massaged to draw inferences about what people do. Do you have any data or have you tested anything? I know you said you're looking at gender and region and country and the economy as well. Um, Do you have anything regarding, say, income differentials or even educational levels? Of course. Oh, yeah? Of course. That's economics, man. That's what my life's about. Of course. Yeah, it's very, very clear cut. I mean, the people who have a higher chance of earning more... Of course, they work more, and much of what it comes out of is our major leisure activity. What's Western people's major leisure activity, you know? I I was going to say TV. I don't know. (laughs) You got it. Okay. (laughs) You got it. And indeed, the champions of TV watching in the Western world are, not surprisingly, the United States of America. We watch more TV than other people in other rich countries. And that's especially true for guys. I mean, I have a line in the book saying the couch potato is the only gendered vegetable. Okay. Uh, TV watching is in every country you look at a disproportionately male activity. I mean, the differences aren't huge, but there are two or three hours a week more TV watching by guys and by women. And this is to some extent affected by what you can do with your time. So this is like people who were working so many hours per day. And they just need to switch off and relax and they find themselves in front of the TV. They do. But nonetheless, those who work more hours watch TV less. You have to. I mean, you only have 24 hours in a day. I mean, if you work work hard, you're going to do less uh, TV watching, less uh, other leisure and less sleeping as well. All of these are affected by the opportunities we have to make money. What's really amazing is let's say you don't work at all for pay. okay, Mm -hmm. but your partner makes a lot of money. So uh, I'm retired, let's say, and my wife is a high-powered attorney bringing in a half a million a year. I'm going to behave differently because of the fact that I have access to so much money. In fact, I'll do things that take a little bit of time but cost a lot of money. I'll sleep less if my partner brings in lots of money. I'll watch TV less 
if my partner brings in lots of money. So even disregarding work, the amount of resources available to you affect how you use your time. I'm sure you've tested also uh, parents who have children and the effects of sleep <laughs> on that particular activity. That's pretty cool, actually. In fact, this was in the first paper we did, and it's showing up again and again, our work and other work. Men sleep less than women. Okay, That's partly because they're working more, and that's still true today. But if they have a young kid, you have a young kid who's getting up in most families in the middle of the night to deal with the howling child. It sure isn't the father. And so young kids disrupt their parents' sleep and the mother in particular, they also disrupt the time the parents spend together. If you have a young kid, you are less likely to be together because you've scheduled their work to be at different times. So one of you can be taking care of the kid. Uh, and so kids are breaking up that old couple of mine, as it were. Do you have any findings on the effects of this? Again, the outcomes we're interested in throughout are how people spend time. I've seen very little. I've not done any research on how it affects your health and so on. We know kids cause make it's not clear even whether kids make divorce more or less likely. So, again, I've done nothing on that at all. Yeah. All my stuff is on how these incentives, how these demographic things affect time. We even looked, as I mentioned, at regional differences between big cities and the rest of the country, including New York versus the rest of the country, London or Paris. What would be the most, say, significant findings that you actually came across regarding how we spend our time and say, is there one particular area or a typical, not, I wouldn't want to say a typical, but a type of identity or person in a particular region who has the, the perfect amount of sleep? It's There's probably no, you. It's probably, you know. No, I'm sure it's not me, okay? I mean, I wish the devil I could sleep more and... Uh... On the other hand, I wouldn't get as much other stuff done. No, there's no such, there's no optimal thing. The crucial point of this is exactly that we think of eight hours a night as being not just normal, but we all do it. And that is totally wrong. Whether my departure from eight hours, be it fewer, or if I slept more and more is good or bad, I don't think I can judge. Physiologists have made attempts to do this. I'm not sure I believe it because their work typically goes on in laboratories. And if you hook me up in a sleep lab and measure things, I'm not sure that would reflect my usual behavior. Most of us are not spending nights in bed in sleep labs. It's just, it's, yeah, yeah. It's just curious because there's so much out there regarding sleep and I'm not really much on that I have come across anyway, the economics of sleep. That's right. And it's unfortunate because economists have spent huge amounts of research time looking at the economics of work, okay, labor supply in response to incentives. And yet work is barely the second biggest use of our time. It's dwarfed by the average person's time spent sleeping. And my point in this paper 30 years ago and the continuing point is it's an important topic. And to some extent, it's going to be affected by economic incentives. And therefore, we ought to look at the magnitude of these incentives and try to measure them and what they cause. Would you, out of curiosity, have looked at, say, the physiology or, you know, I know you mentioned there at the beginning there is circadian rhythm. So you're familiar with all this type of um, terminology when it right. comes to the sleep and your body and the REMs and so on. Um, have you found, even though you seven hours you already mentioned was pretty much a good thing, but regarding sleep cycles and the optimum time to wake up or the optimum 
number of hours or does that matter at all? I'm sure it does matter. Again, you're now getting optimum in terms of what? In terms of physiological well-being? It's no longer an economic question that I can look at. Okay. okay. Although I imagine somebody will think about it. I mean, given the work on sleep that I've done and others have done since, I would think somebody would look at whether sleeping more enhances your feelings of well-being. Uh, the problem is, what if it's simply the case that those who are happy happen to sleep more or sleep less? What's the causation? Mm. And so one needs some causative factor to generate that relationship. Otherwise, it's simply correlation and rather meaningless. I found myself personally that when I exercised, I slept better and I had a, a better you know, sleep and felt a lot more refreshed in the morning, which I suppose gets to a point where you actually become fitter. You actually, people think that once you do exercise, maybe it is true at the beginning, you would need that sleep and you feel a bit groggy afterwards. But over time, um, I, I found out that was my best time of sleeping. For me, no, not for me. I mean, I've been running long distance for 50 years and I run three, maybe four times a week. The days I run, I sleep on average, probably no better or no worse, unless I've gone a very long distance, yes. in which case I really am wiped out and do sleep more. But in general, for three or four mile run, it has no impact on the amount I sleep the subsequent evening. See, that long distance running is hard on the body as well, physically, and you know it wouldn't be the type of exercise I would have done. <laughs> <laughs> Life's a trade-off, sir, okay? Yeah. I know if I didn't run long distance, my uh, heart-lung capacity would not be as good and my weight wouldn't be as good. On the other hand, my knees wouldn't hurt most of the time either. So it's a trade-off. True, true. And as well as that, I, I kind of planned it myself that, okay, if I'm going to be exercising in the morning, I'll go to bed earlier. And I, it kind of was like a natural scheduling that I sure. did. And that helped without even thinking about getting my hours sleep or whether I, got, whether I was under pressure to have my seven or eight hours sleep and got less or more. I just knew that I was to be getting up early and needed to go to bed early and just kept it simple like that and i felt then that everything fell into place like my eating behavior um was healthier and also my productivity was a lot better for me I've, i don't think it makes any darn difference the nice thing is living in texas half the year i don't have to get up really early to exercise because i won't go running in the dark and it's not light even right now until six forty-five or so so it's not a matter of getting up early. But I don't think for me these things over the years have made any difference at all. The sleep time, sleep amount really has not been affected by all the exercising I do and vice versa. I used to think if I didn't sleep well, oh, my gosh, I won't be able to run fast. And I've learned that it doesn't matter either. Temperature matters. If it's much above 20 Celsius, it gets hard to run, which is a problem in Central Texas. But uh, sleep makes no difference at all. So how were you otherwise, Dan, since I was last speaking to you? Because it was March 2015 when I had the I, episode last I noticed released. that. What was that about? Was that beauty? That was beauty, yeah. Uh, okay. Beauty pays, and it was all about regional yeah. differences as well. <laughs> no, that's right. Oh, I remember because the stuff we'd done on uh, Scotland and Wales, yes. Yes. <laughs> no, this is, that, was a, that was a book which was sort of semi-popular, okay? It was on all the research on beauty that I and others had done subsequently. This is the same idea, this new book. The difference being this is written at a lower level at all. There are no numbers, no equations, a number of easily understood figures, and a very chatty way of talking. There are all kinds of stories, songs, 
uh, anecdotes about my own family, for example, and so on and so forth. It's written at a very sort of pop. Semi, I'm trying to be as popular as an economist can, which is, of course, pretty low level of standard, of course. <laughs> well, that's all interesting. We need stories, and stories will sell because people, I personally enjoy them myself, and not to have an overload of equations or data, like it was on the tip of my tongue, and I didn't want to be asking either, did you have any statistics on the stuff that you're finding? So, of, of course I do, yeah. but they're all expressed graphically, though. Yes. For example, the neat result I sort of alluded to about regional differences, folks in London and New York, they sleep less than the rest of the country, up to an hour a week less, which is not huge, but not small. They also d don't do as much laundry, cooking, and so on, and they watch less TV than elsewhere, okay? Mm -hmm. Which is perhaps not surprising. I mean, if you're in the middle of Manhattan, why watch TV when you can walk four blocks to Lincoln Center and see the opera? True. Or go to, or go to a show on Broadway, and the same thing in London. Whereas if, I mean, I won't make nasty comments about other towns, but it's a lot tougher to find entertainment substitutes for television when you're in a more isolated place. So yeah, well, we have huge amounts of statistics in the book, and we try to sugarcoat them to get the ideas across. And were you ever attempted to link that finding to the one we discussed in, in your earlier paper on beauty in those cities? Because <laughs> no. people want their beauty sleep and you're no, saying people, that more people beautiful... People have talked about my doing a paper on beauty sleep. No, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> because the, that, that saying, you know, you need your beauty sleep and people living yeah, in I... New York and London sleep in less hours, but they're most beautiful. In terms of, well, your of course, what's paper? the cause, though? Maybe as, as I showed in the one previous paper, the more beautiful people congregate in these uh, more highfalutin areas. So it's hard, hard to hear what the causation is. I doubt sleep has a heck of a lot to do with it. <laughs> it's true, true. Uh, you were saying you had your sh you shared some stories on your family as well. Was this be going back generations whereby people would have had longer, you know, more sleep? Because, no, no, it's no. not that at all. It's just my kids and grandkids. For example, I start off the book about how we perceive time. And I tell a story on my 45th birthday. I made this wisecrack to my then 16-year-old son and said, you know, uh, time seems to be going faster for me. Mm. And he said, yeah, Dad, that's because you're going downhill. <laughs> Which um, is an interesting comment on the perception of time. In some sense, he was right although he meant physiologically rather than sort of thinking about the world. And there are all kinds of stories about other, the, the other son, him, various grandchildren doing crazy things and so on and so forth. I mean, I have, a, I have six, two sons and six grandchildren, so a lot of kids. And do you want to dive into one of those stories? Or do we have to wait and see? And, uh, when this I think you have published? to wait and see. I mean, the, the one with the uh, sun and going downhill. I mean, well, I, there are other things the kids did. One granddaughter, I have a chapter on young and old in which I look at the time, how high school students, university students use their time. And it is it's really quite interesting, actually. High school female students, this is, I don't know if you, if you observe this, spend more time socializing with each other than males in high school, okay? Mm. And indeed, one granddaughter, I think, was finally told she had to cut back on her texting. She had done 1,200 texts in one month. Whoa. Which is pretty impressive. She'd, she'd exhausted the family texting budget. 
But by the time people get to college, it's the guys who are doing more socializing than the women, which is sort of interesting. I mean, it sort of flips around. The guys are going out probably drinking with their mates, whereas the women are doing less of that. But in high school, it's the reverse, which I think is an interesting phenomenon. It's one of the few things that sort of flips gender-wise. I think, as you yeah, I think we have to get an anthropologist on the show to talk about that. <laughs> well, you might. I mean... Again, I'm not sure what the reason is, but I mean, it's just again, a lot of presentation is of facts and some speculation, not about that one, but whether economic outcomes like work or sleep. I mean, there's other stuff on sleep, which is quite fascinating, namely that at the same income, minorities in the U.S. sleep more, watch more television than do majorities in the U.S., okay. which is a fascinating finding. And I've got a nice economic explanation for that I and mean, i think it's correct actually too i wonder would it have anything to, the previous point on males sleeping or sorry socializing more in college is that to do with testosterone levels or is there something going on there in terms of that type of group mentality when men come of age who knows? I who mean, knows? I, I, I don't look at that. I present this fact. That's a story. But why should that matter more? Because guys come of age later than women, possibly. It's, that's a good, in fact, I do make an allusion to that in terms of studying. In American high schools, total time spent in the classroom and studying by men is less than by, well, by boys is less than by girls. That's not true in the UK. It's not true in Germany. Uh the guys just do less homework in America than the women, than the girls do, which I think is one of the reasons why in American universities, they're becoming higher education is becoming increasingly feminized. I mean, the rate of graduation from university among men is now well below that of women. And that was the opposite when I was a college student in the 60s. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how it moves on like that as well, you know. Yep, yep. You, you're on about the time, that story with your 16-year-old son on your 45th birthday. I recall having a similar conversation to, with my own mother. I think I was about 10 at the time. And I realized that when I was heading into, I think it was my final year in primary school here in Ireland, which uh, goes up to the age of 12, uh, I just commented that that year actually flew by. It, it was it seemed faster than the previous year, even mm -hmm. though the it's the same time period. The same time. But she and said, yeah, you think about yeah, the opposite you, yeah. of this, I may say, I don't know what extent in Ireland, what one does in summers in school, but I used to find in summers in high school and grade school, it would just drag and drag. I mean, the school really keeps you occupied. It does, yeah. And uh, until I got a summer job when I was 15 and a half, I mean, the summers were just endless. Yeah. And now, I mean, summer has started here. I teach again starting September 1, not at Texas. And I just think the summer, I have a few weeks here, have a month in Europe, a few weeks here. And I feel like I'm running around like crazy and the clock is going faster and faster. That's, of course, because I'm a lot older than I'm 75. So it makes a big difference. So the perception of time, I think, goes faster in terms of how we spend it, yeah, yeah. how we live it. That, as as you get older, there's a reason for that. First of all, as you get older, you have more money, and it takes time to spend money, so you feel you're racing around. There's no question; those who have money, more money, we have. I have a whole chapter on time stress. Those who have more money are more stressed for time. Okay, mm -hmm. even if they aren't working, 
you have more money, you're still more stressed for time because it takes time to spend money. And I think as you get older, the same thing also happens. Work is very stressful, but even if you're not working, having all that money and having a fairly short number of years left to enjoy it makes one feel more stressed and more rushed. I mean, we're not all going to live forever, and I think most people are pretty aware of that, even though they don't want to admit it all the time. True, true. Like, we as human beings, we're a very social animal. Why is it that, the, especially in the 80s, the whole idea of working and getting very little sleep and, you know, to in this, I don't know whether it's due to capitalist societies, but we are, there's other schools of thought, I don't know whether it's Marxists or not, and we should spend more time and leisure. Well, I certainly agree with that. But I think, again, I don't want to say what the optimal is worldwide. Okay, I don't want to dictate to people being a Chicago economist about what they should be doing. But it is the case that in America, it's just fascinatingly different from other rich countries. I mean, it really stands out like a sore thumb. In the late 70s, Americans worked no more than people in other rich countries. We're right in the middle. Now we are the champions of hard work compared to other rich countries. We don't work more per week, and we don't, we're no more likely than people in other countries to be working at some point during the year, but Americans have very few holidays and very few holiday weeks. America is the only rich country that doesn't governmentally mandate paid holiday time. Mm -hmm. Ireland certainly does, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And UK, every other rich country. In the US, that's not true. So the average American, even though the government doesn't require it, gets a grand total of two out, two weeks of paid holiday per year. Most countries, it's four or five. And that's why Americans work more. We're just crazy. And uh, I don't think there's any great moral value in working. People should do what they want. But because we're, in a sense, on a rat race, and the government refuses, or we refuse to allow the government to mandate that employers give us paid time. That's the biggest policy thing in this book. The U.S. needs to follow other countries. Otherwise, we're going to be kind of continuing rat race, working harder and harder. We know artificial intelligence is going to replace some labor. And people may not be able to upskill or look for alternative jobs that they're actually currently in. Well, you know, I've, I've heard that line countless times. There was a book in 1960s by a man named Robert Theobald, 1960 actually, pointing out that there'll be no jobs available in a few years because of improving technology. I've heard this line since I've been in economics. I don't believe a word of it. Just as some jobs will be destroyed, others will be created just as they were by the personal computer and by computing generally. So I'm not worried about that at all. I've been around long enough to realize that similar phenomena have not generated a lack of work for people. I'd like to think that people will start relaxing. But unless the government gets people off this treadmill by saying, hey, your employer will pay you for four weeks of paid holiday. Uh, in the U.S., this is not going to happen. Uh, other countries did it. America is just backward. Do you believe in Schumpeter's creative destruction then in terms of, or I don't know if it applies to jobs like that, but we might borrow that term to suggest that with new jobs that have been created or with 
new technologies, they do destroy old jobs, just like the way agriculture has become more efficient and needed less farmer because of machinery. But new jobs are created because in some countries like Ireland and the US, we're almost at full unemployment now. Yeah, we are at full employment. We have 3.9%. The one neat thing about this, by the way, yes, that is the case. The one neat thing about this and one of those shocking, surprising changes to me as a labor economist was in the U.S. between 50 and 2000, an increasing fraction of people that working at some point in time during the year. And since 2000, that's fallen back in the U.S., so my only hope is that maybe Americans are finally getting the idea they don't have to kill themselves. They're willing to give up a few dollars in order to get a bit more time to themselves. But in terms of hours per year, we're still, we are for the last 15 years, the world champions among rich countries. And this is an embarrassment. In terms of creative destruction, yeah, jobs are created, other ones are killed. This is part of the natural thing. It's been going on for thousands of years. I just wonder, like, I recently read a book by Viktor Frankl. I don't know if you've read A Man's Search for Meaning. Would you be familiar with this? No, no. He spent time at, uh, in the concentration camps in Germany, and mm. um, he just wrote about his experiences and also how his own study on psychiatry evolved from this, even though he, he worked on it before he was put into concentration camps, and he called it logotherapy. But he he noticed that... The despondence that some of his fellow concentration camp prisoners, I suppose, they they seem to display the very same behaviors or very similar behaviors in terms of their mental state and their outlook in life as those who were unemployed. And he called it unemployment neurosis. Hmm. And I think and maybe it's, it's it's the case also for people who may have who could be working as well, but have this extra idle time that they don't know what to do with themselves and well, you know, they I, want I, to work I, more. Keynes talked about this in a wonderful essay in uh, 1930 about at some point, perhaps in 100 years, people won't need to work as much. And what are they going to do with their time? And he wrote this 90 years ago, so we're almost up to his deadline. I'm not real worried about that. And moreover, I'm not worried if people, in fact, do spend their freed up time doing things that you or I might not approve of. We had some evidence on this in Japan and Korea, where the government made employers pay more overtime and the employers cut back on work time. And so we could see directly without people choosing it, suddenly they have an incentive to have more time out of work. And were they happier? The answer is yes. In Korea, when they cut back on work time because the employers didn't want to have as long a work week, the people did sacrifice some income, but they had more free time. They didn't use it in a way that I would consider very wise. They spent a lot of time washing up and grooming themselves, but they were happier. And if they're happier, far be it from me to argue with the validity or the value of what they're doing with their freed up time. So this, too. I'm not real worried about. I don't know if you're familiar with the old cartoon character, Alfred E. Newman. No, no. No, uh, this okay. Mad Magazine in the 50s all the way to right now. This is the goofy-looking kid on the front, and his motto is, what, me worry? And that's the way I feel about some of these things. I mean, I'm not too worried about this. I think things will work out. I just think we ought to get off in America, off this treadmill, this rat race that we find ourselves in, and people will be very much happier. You mentioned Japan there. That's one country who have this culture whereby you dedicate your whole life to a company. 
and there's images I, I have to say men there's images of men I don't know about women but there are men uh, walking in the, just in a subway and they just collapse and fall asleep or they're sleeping at a bar after work right after working you know 16. that stereotype is just wrong is okay? it wrong yeah in fact, it was true in the 70s when Japan was still in some sense recovering from World War II. Today, the average Japanese works well fewer hours than the average American and not much more than the average continental European. Are so that's any? just image that image is just out of date. The Japanese are not overworked or not hardworking compared to the U.S. I hate falling for this uh, type of stereotype, you know, pointing this thing out. And I, I feel naive having said that you know or gullible okay, having said fine. it the um, average person thinks this i mean this is one of the neat things about my pointing this stuff out in the book that the americans think oh all the other countries are working so hard they aren't we are the champions of the hard work league and i don't view that as anything to be proud about we don't get that much extra out of it in terms of income and living standards and we're working at the margin more than most people if they could freely choose would do so people find work stressful more than any other activity they do, and it's one of their least favorite activities. And somehow we're on a rat race, and politically we're incapable in this country of getting off that treadmill, getting out of the gerbil tube. And most other countries have succeeded in doing so. Does the person at the top, like the U.S. president, should they be careful? Because Bill Clinton firstly advocated for all of this work hard, and Trump then again spending all his time working and little sleep based on what he was saying and what we perceive it to be the case. And so in order to be successful at the, like a president to become a U.S. president, you have to have less sleep. <laughs> I'll give you a story on that going back in history. Yeah. Uh, Herbert Hoover, who was not viewed as one of the more successful U.S. presidents, was terribly bothered by his successor, Franklin D. Roosevelt, knocking off at five o'clock and having a drink or two and relaxing afterward. I mean, the degree of success in a position like that or many other positions is really independent of how much you sleep and beyond some level how much you work. I know in my own case, I mean, my own work, if I could be a bit more efficient, what you do is you, if you're really good at these things, you cut off the unimportant. It's not an input. It's the value of the input. Okay, and that produces the outputs that make you successful. So I really don't think that working hard, working long hours after some rather low level is all that productive. But we have a theory of diminishing marginal productivity. I believe it's true in almost any of our activities. And therefore, working very, very long hours, the marginal hour is not all that productive. I suppose it's like that for everything, you know, even for exercise as well. Of course. You know, I mean, in fact, you can overdo it, although in exercise... I mean, the productivity actually goes negative after a while. And I hurt myself. I know I'll hurt myself if I run too much. So it's the same sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Dan, is there anything you'd like to leave with us in terms of the topic we were talking about or anything else? Sure. Let me talk about stress, okay, and being rushed for time. I think in rich countries often saying, oh, I'm really stressed for time is almost a badge of honor. That was people gripe and complain about being stressed for time, but they're really proud about it. And typically those are the people who are working terribly hard and have lots of money. Money makes you stressed for time, just of lack of money makes you stressed for money. And I think this whole notion of being proud about working hard, being proud about being stressed for time, 
It's just a real red herring and something you ought to avoid. Work is not is not the goal of humankind, I don't think. I like to work more than most people. My wife says I'm a workaholic. And yet I know full well that's not what I ought to be about or in the end what I am about. Dan. Okay. Thanks very much for coming on the show for a second time. You are, as always, an economic rock star. And people can check out you at your... You have a web page at the university at IZA. I have lots of web pages. If you Google me, there's University of Texas web page that has all my stuff. Okay. Great. Thanks very much, Dan. And Thank I look you. forward to reading your book when it comes out. Spending time. Well, thanks for contacting me. Take care. Frank. All the best. You too. Now. Bye. Bye. Economic Rockstar is a free podcast that does not exclude anyone from listening as long as they have a device to listen, download or stream. I have many listeners from all parts of the world and I truly am pleased to know that the Economic Rockstar podcast unites all of you through the common theme of economics. I strive to commit to releasing an episode each week and aim to develop Economic Rockstar into much more than just a podcast. Patreon is a platform that gives you, the listener of the Economic Rockstar podcast, the opportunity to express your appreciation of the show by committing a financial reward for as little as $1 a month. Patreon allows me, the creator of the Economic Rockstar podcast, to be rewarded and paid by you so I can continue with the running costs of the show and to reinvest and expand the podcast into other platforms or mediums in the future. To find out more on how you can help the Economic Rockstar podcast and have your name added to the supporters list on my website, please check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar or visit the supporters page on the Economic Rockstar website. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.